Life One Church, what's up everybody? Come on, how y'all doing today? What a great day to be in church. We love Dedication Sunday. We always say, you keep building babies, we'll keep dedicating them to Jesus. Come on, somebody. It's a big day. We got river baptisms this afternoon down at, uh, it's at the Red River Canoe spot, which is in Adams, just about 15, 12 minutes from here. Man, it's going to be a great day. I'm excited. And uh, I got a, a word for you today. I think it's going to be very challenging and convicting. Welcome to LifePoint, everybody. My name is Mike Burnett. I get to serve here as lead pastor. It's an honor to greet all of you. If this is your first time with us, your first time guest, or first time with us online or on demand, we want to say a big welcome to you. LifePoint, can we just shout the word welcome to all of our guests today? Come on, somebody. Say Welcome. <laughs> We're glad you're here. We don't want to single you out. We do want to invite you to take a next step with us. And just if you would text the letters LPC to that number 31996, we promise not to harass you. We just want to invite you to take a next step with us here at the church. Also, I want to say what's up to everybody at our Chandler, Arizona, or Phoenix, Arizona, East Valley Dream Center location, and Austin Peay State University doing a run-through again today as we launch that campus officially next Sunday. Some of you guys in this service, I would love for you to pray about going to our Austin P campus starting next week. It's an 11 a.m. service, so just a 30-minute delay. But help us lead that campus and serve it well. We want to see thousands of college students come to faith in Jesus Christ. Can I hear a big amen, everybody? Come on now. We love it. And then everybody who's joining us online around the world. Um, hey, this whole series we're in in the parables, it is designed to be a small group series. So we want to invite everybody to join a small group, if you haven't already, it's not too late for that, or to host a small group discussion. That would be the easiest way for you to connect to this sermon throughout the week. And so if you get on our website, lifepointchurch.tv, there's a button there on the homepage of our site, there, there in the middle, where you can host a small group. And this message today, I'm telling you, is going to challenge you, and it will give you plenty to talk about. We'll get there in a minute. Um, first of all, I want to say we got some swag that we're trying to sell in our bookstore. And we got some other stuff coming out for the fall. Come on now. How many of you know we're fashion designers around here? Yeah, not really. But uh, we got this windbreaker rain jacket. It always comes in handy. And we got some available still in our bookstore. We got some new colorways coming out this fall. And the latest uh, fashion statement I got is this old man boot, um, which is because I'm not 20 anymore. So uh, I've been faking it for the last six weeks, just limping around up here on stage. But actually, my doctor said I need to wear this boot. So I'm going to have it on for the next few weeks. Um, the story goes, like, you always want it to be so cool. You know what I'm saying? Like, when you get hurt in your old age, you want to be like, yeah, man, I fought off a bear and the devil came at me. It was adult swim at the community pool. It's true. Lifeguards blew the whistle, and I looked at my wife. I was like, babe, let's go, diving board time. And so it was a line of all these little kids, you know, on the diving board. And I'm like, I'm not getting in line with little eight-year-olds, you know. So when they blew the whistle, I was like, babe, you and me, backflips and gator times, you know what I'm saying? Anyway, uh, by my fifth jump, I landed weird on my foot, and I ripped a tendon in the bottom of my foot. So pray that God heal my foot, because I really don't want to have to have surgery. And then roll out here on one of them little carts. Because I'll milk it all to death, you know what I'm saying? I'll be suffering, put out posts, like, I need ice cream, I'm suffering. Anyway. <laughs> hey, thanks for being a generous church. I'm going to get into Luke 13, grab your Bibles with me. Uh, let me just thank you and challenge you in the area of generosity. You guys are so faithful and you're generous. We had the, one of the strongest months ever in the history of our church last month. And on top of that, you guys, I just want to let you know what you've done uh, in these last six weeks. We had a, a big initiative with One Day to Feed the World where you guys gave just under $180,000. And on top of that, at the same time, we had a disaster in Waverly in Middle Tennessee, and you guys gave about $106,000 above your tithe to that. So I just want to say thank you. A quarter of a million dollars you guys gave away this last just three weeks. So thank you for that. 
that being said, I want, to, I want to challenge you between now and the end of the year. I love to look at the year and seasons, right, and opportunities to do certain things. And in the beginning of the year is a great time to kind of get back into some rhythms of devotion and prayer time and that kind of stuff. But as we come to the end of the year, how many of you know that we are four months from Christmas? Yeah, I know. I just gave some of you a heart attack, right? You're like, oh, my gosh. Um, they're already starting to sell decorations, I think, for that. Anyway. You know, we're, we're going to start thinking money and budgeting and finances and borrowing and all that kind of stuff. I want to challenge you, between now and the end of 2021, would you take a step in this area of generosity? And, and let me just lay out for you what some steps look like. We, we teach our kids this, right? We're, we're always trying to teach our kids kind of the next step based on their maturity. I've got four daughters. Uh, they're 14, 12, 9, and 7. And uh, this weekend, we taught our girls the value of commission. That's when you get paid for a job. I don't believe in allowance. You know what I'm I don't give my kids an allowance. I say, I allow you to live in my house. That's allowance. You get a bedroom and groceries and food. Um, so they don't just get money for living there. They, and there's certain things that they have to do to live in our house, like clean your room. Don't lose a fight. You know what I'm saying? Uh, it's basic stuff. Um, clean the bathrooms. Do the dishes. Walk the dog. My goodness. I bought it. You're cleaning the poop. You know what I'm saying? Basic stuff. But we are teaching them there's some jobs around the house that are unusual that you can make a little coin from. You know what I'm saying? A little money here and there, a dollar for this chore, two for this, three for this. We're talking basic stuff like, like re-roof the whole roof. You know what I'm saying? Basic stuff. <laughs> so anyway, this weekend, we're, we're walking through the list of some chores that they can do. And my youngest, is, she is so entrepreneurial. She's like, I'm going to do like seven jobs right now. You know, <laughs> she's seven. And she, she's like, Dad, I, I scrubbed the sink and the toilet in the guest bathroom. I didn't do the wind mirror because I can't reach it. <laughs> so anyway... In the process of her doing these, them doing these jobs, it's a way for them to, I, I think everybody should teach their kids how to work. Come on, somebody. I believe in work hard and don't be a mooch and don't take stuff for nothing. The Bible says if you don't eat, work, you don't eat. Come on, somebody. So anyway, um, so she, uh, the first thing Stephanie's teaching her is the steps of what to do when you make a little money. So she made a few bucks this weekend doing some chores. And, and the first thing, Steph brings out her three jars, you know, again, and says, okay, now before we do anything with this money, we're going to give the first 10% to God. We're going to tithe. So we had to break the dollar into dimes and, you know, teach her how to tithe and put that in the jar. And then the next thing we want to do is we want to save and put 10% or so away in our future. And then there's 80% left where you can spend. We well, she ain't got nothing to spend it on, you know what I'm saying? So, so then she's like, well, I can put more in the save jar. And so we're just teaching kind of next steps with generosity with our kids. And I want to encourage all of you to do that. Take the time to teach your family and talk about this. But let me just challenge our whole church family. I want to challenge everybody to consider a step to take in the area of generosity. And, and, and I look at kind of the, the, the levels or the steps of generosity really like a four-step ladder. The first step would be get on the ladder, right? And so if you've never been a giver, and I mean specifically like if you've never given to God by giving through his church, I want to encourage you to take that step. And it's exciting. It's a little maybe uh, you, you might get nervous going, oh, you know, what are they going to do with it? Can I trust them? Or what's going to happen to my budget? Listen, you put that in God's hand. Let the Lord prove himself to you and just take that first step. I'll never forget, like teaching our girls, Brooklyn, my youngest, when she earned this money yesterday, she was so excited this morning, she had it in an envelope, her tithe. And it was the first thing she got to do with the money was bring her gift to the Lord. And so take that first step. It's exciting. Maybe you've become a, a somewhat kind of sporadic giver throughout your, your life as a Christian. I want to encourage you this season, maybe the second step for you would be to become a regular giver. How many of you know it's good to be regular? <laughs> Some of you caught that. Thank you very much. 41-year-old right here. Um, it is good to be, what I mean by that, put it in your budget. Make a plan for it. Like everything else you do, become a regular giver. Maybe that's the step you need to take as you make your, 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 your steps forward this fall. 
Uh, the third step of the ladder, of the giving ladder, what we call it, is to become a tither. And that's a percentage giver, specifically a 10% giver. And you go, where, where does that come from? Well, the Bible actually describes a pattern for God's people to give the first tenth portion of what God gives to us back to him. So if you grow 10 watermelons, you'd give one to the Lord. If you had 10 chickens lay 10 eggs, you're going to give one egg back to the Lord. And, and, and the way that they would always do it is we give this to the Lord as an offering of thank you. It's not a bill. It's not a due. We don't give it because we're forced to. We give it as an act of worship to the Lord. And maybe that's the step for some of you that you're ready to take. You've been a regular giver, but it hasn't been like a first tenth portion. That's a big step of trust. It's the only place in the Bible God said to trust him and watch him be fruitful for you. And then maybe you are a tither, and this is the fourth step that we talk about. And this is where my wife and I live, and we want to stay forever. And it's the above the tithe, just generous as God directs, generous giver beyond the tithe. And this is where offerings like One Day to Feed the World or, or Giving to Disaster or Helping with Yapax or Helping Plant a Church, that's where beyond our tithe we go, Lord, what else do you want from me? And it is a privilege. We look at that kind of giving not as, not as a burden but a blessing, to be a, a blessing to other people. Can I hear an amen? So let me just ask you, wherever you're at in your giving, I don't, I don't police your giving. I'm just asking you to consider where you're at. If you're not a giver, become one. If you're an irregular giver, become a regular giver. Maybe you're a regular giver, let's become a tither. If you're a tither, let's look for ways to become generous beyond the tithe. And I, I just want to challenge you, between now and the end of the year, take a step. You don't have to jump all the way up the ladder. Just take a step, and let's all move forward in this area of giving this year. Can I hear a big amen, everybody? All right, hey, turn with me to Luke chapter 13. And we are continuing in our parables series. We're in week four of our parable series. Again, it's designed to be a small group study for you. And we want everybody to engage in small groups. And you can get that information on our website, lifepointchurch.tv. You can host a conversation, etc. Now, today we're looking at a more obscure parable. It's one that you probably read and you go, I'm not really sure what that meant, but I'm just going to keep reading. You ever come to the places in the Bible like that where you're like, I'm going to ask somebody about that or just keep going? This is one of those passages, actually. So it's a bit obscure, but I think it's powerful. It's one of the, it's one of the most gut-wrenching parables, actually, of Jesus. Um, before we get there, I just want to say thanks again to Pastor Wayne Francis for an amazing message last Sunday. Come on, the cost of following Jesus. That talk was crazy good. Praise God. If you missed that, get online and listen. Today we're looking at uh, this a little bit more obscure parable called the parable of the barren fig tree. Now, I, I love the parables of Jesus. I think these reveal the heart of God, and an invitation into the culture of the kingdom of God. And this is, every parable is for us. Every parable is good news for us. But this one hits different. I'm just going to tell you, of all the parables, uh, they've been challenging, but this one is really strong. So we're going to jump right in. Uh, let me just tell you on the front end, this is a really hard parable to preach. Last night I was texting my wife, reading over my notes and reworking some things. And I told her, I was like, I don't like this sermon. I don't even want to preach it. In fact, I was tempted to do the old pastor trick where you call the worship leader and go, hey, let's just worship the whole time and blame the Holy Ghost on it, you know, that's just spirit move. That's really an insider trick where pastors weren't ready. That's what that was. Anyway, I was tempted to change the sermon. I just didn't like prepping this message. But how many of you know all of the word of God is profitable for us? Can I hear an amen? So let's read together Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 1. We're going to read through verse 9, and I will, uh, we'll unpack it together. So there were some present at that very time who came to Jesus and told him about the Galileans. Now, Galilee is the region where Jesus did most of his ministry, right? The Sea of Galilee, all these cities and villages. And these people from the region of the Galilee, these are Galileans. So there were some that came to Jesus telling him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate, Pontius Pilate, had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answers them and said, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners 
than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you need to underline this, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders or sinners than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then he told this parable, verse 6. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on the fig tree and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, the caretaker, look, for three years, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I found none. Cut it down. The caretaker, why, he said, why should it use up the ground? The caretaker, the vine dresser, answered the owner of the land. He said, sir, leave it alone one more year, this year, until I can dig it around it and put some manure on it. Then if it should bear fruit next year, great, well and good. But if not, then you can cut it down. Lord, bless the reading of your word and teach us the heart of God and change us forever in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, everybody just take a deep breath. Say, I can take it. Nope, you didn't all do it. So I need you all to do it because we need to be in this thing together. Take a deep breath. Say, I can take it. This is a tough word. Um, we're going to walk through it together. This part of Luke's gospel is part of what scholars call, some scholars call, the travel narrative, okay? So in Luke's gospel, uh, starting in chapter 9, at the end of chapter 9, Jesus starts heading up to Jerusalem, and between chapter 9 and until chapter 19, he's traveling from the Galilee region up to Jerusalem. It says that he set his face towards Jerusalem and began to go there. And so the next 11 chapters are him traveling up to Jerusalem, and in, he, he's going up that way at the end of three and a half years of ministry in order to give his life for the sins of the world. So this is his last trip. This is his last parade up to Jerusalem. And on the way to Jerusalem, he's preaching, teaching, doing miracles. There's incredible stories and sermons that he preaches. He has meals with all kinds of people, changing lives, amazing season of ministry. And in fact, some of the passages in this section of Luke's gospel are just such defining moments for the ministry and the heart of Jesus. In this set of 11 chapters, we have the the parable of the, uh, of the uh, Good Samaritan, which only appears in this section of Scripture. The parable of the prodigal son of the father with two sons is really compelling in Luke 15. We have um, the, the, his interaction with the rich young man in Luke 18. and I mean, just some powerful stuff between Luke 9 and 19. But this obscure parable is one of those ones that you kind of read through and you're like, I'm not really sure what I just read, but I'm just going to keep going because I like the next part. But I think it's important for us to unpack this because we're going to learn some things about the heart of God for us. And the first thing we're going to see unpacking this story is that everybody, we all need to experience the mercy of God. Now, let me just walk us through this text again slowly. It says there was some present at that very time that had come to Jesus and told him about some Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Okay, so let me explain this. It's really bizarre, and there's actually no real backstory in Luke's gospel. We don't know what happened with Pilate and these Galileans, and, and history books aren't very clear about this, but just let me explain it. Apparently, some Galilean Jews, people from the, some area, Tiberias, Capernaum, some city around the Sea of Galilee, are making their way up to Jerusalem to make a sacrifice to God. Now, the, the, the the rules of the old covenant are if you're in sin, blood has to be shed for the forgiveness of sin. It's the blood of an animal, maybe a, a dove or a bull or a lamb or whatever. And there's an annual day of atonement for the whole nation of Israel. It's called Yom Kippur. There's also 
periodical, irregular times of offering sacrifice. And you can at any time go up to the temple, offer sacrifice, meet with a priest, have your sins atoned for and paid for. For some reason, this group of Galileans are going up to Jerusalem to make a sacrifice to God. And the reason for that is to pay for sin. This was the Jewish custom again. And the place to make those sacrifices was in Jerusalem, more specifically in the temple, even more specifically the sacrificial altar. So we're in Jerusalem, which is part of Judea. So Jerusalem, the temple, the sacrificial altar. And someone is now reporting to Jesus about an apparent massacre that happened. The governor of this Judean province is a guy named Pontius Pilate. He would become very famous in a few chapters for the crucifixion of Jesus. Let me just tell you, crucifixion was not a Jewish thing. It was a Roman thing. The Jews didn't have a means of killing bad people, but the Romans certainly did. And so Pilate was this Roman governor of this Roman-occupied province of Judea, where the temple and Jerusalem were located. And for some reason, we don't have clarity. Listen, Pilate had this group of Jewish pilgrims slaughtered at the time of their offering sacrifice to God. He had them killed, not outside of the temple. It's apparent that he had them killed inside the temple near the altar of sacrifice. He had them killed on or near the altar, and their human blood, look at this, was mingled with the blood of their animal sacrifices. Now, this is incredibly gruesome. This is just to show you how vile and how gruesome of a dictator Pilate was and Rome was. They had no concern for the, the, the honor of our faith and our traditions and our religion and our altar ceremonies. They didn't care at all. It was incredibly brutal and incredibly gruesome. And you may not understand this, but the, the act by Pilate would have been seen as extremely heinous and cruel and sacrilegious to have human blood on the altar of the Jewish sacrificial altar, human blood mixed with animal sacrifice. Jews have no place in their theology for human sacrifice, which is, by the way, one of the reasons why the sacrifice of Jesus was so significant. But it wasn't done on a, the altar in the temple. It was done on the cross. Come on, somebody. So Jews have no place for human sacrifice in the law of Moses. So this is heinous. It's cruel. It's sacrilegious. And for Pilate to do this as the governor, who's going to fight him? Who's going to take him on? He rules everything they're occupying. And it was an affront to God to the Jewish traditions, to the temple, and it was an affront, an obscene affront to the holy temple to let that happen. And Jesus is hearing this news. Some people came to Jesus and they said, did you hear what happened in Jerusalem? Did you hear that some Galileans went up to make sacrifice for sin and Pilate slaughtered them on the altar and mixed their human blood with the blood of their goats or bulls or whatever animals they were sacrificing? Now, I imagine... The people, we're not clear, but just imagine, you know, Jesus has been saying, I'm king of kings, I'm Lord of lords. They're probably maybe coming to Jesus going, all right, look, are you going to stand for this? Are you going to get up there and kill Pilate? Are you going to whack him and take him out now? Come on, king. Maybe they're expecting Jesus to post about it or rally about it or build a picket or protest about it. Jesus is hearing this news and is probably shook as well like everyone, deeply offended. I mean, I, I would imagine watching this on the news and seeing the report and literally people with their hands over the mouth going, I know some of those people. Galileans are my people. How did this happen? And Jesus, rather 
then take up arms and go confront Pilate, he starts to ask some really hard questions and then tell a parable. He uses this as an opportunity to talk about the reality of God's judgment. And look at what he asks. This is such a crazy set of questions. They said, Jesus, some Galileans were slaughtered by Pilate and they mixed their blood on the altar and they're disgusted. And he goes, do you think that these Galileans were maybe worse than worse sinners than other Galileans, and maybe that's why they suffered this way. Maybe they did something really bad, and, and they're just getting the judgment of God. Maybe they did something you don't know about, and, and do you think maybe that what they had this coming to them because they were up to something that you don't know about? He's asking questions that a lot of us tend to ask in moments of crisis. It's really interesting. I mean, I don't know about you, but if, if I'm in the crowd, I'm going, okay, Jesus, I'm not hanging out with you for like a week because that's insensitive. Talk about a lack of emotional intelligence. Maybe, maybe he's going, do you think they're worse sinners or do you think that's why they were killed? Maybe they deserved it. Maybe God was punishing them or, or maybe they did something so bad they deserved death for their sins. Many of us struggle with questions like this. Every time something bad happens, we start asking, why, how, this isn't fair. It's a question of fairness. Should, should certain people get worse judgment or punishment from God? Are there degrees of sin that deserve more or less of God's wrath? We, we can all think of somebody that we know that, hey, at least I don't do what they do, and they deserve worse than me. Or maybe we ask questions on the other side of this coin, and we say things like, why did they have to suffer? They're such a good person. These are normal human questions that we ask every time they're suffering, and so Jesus just puts it on the forefront. He said, well, let's talk about what happened. And then he answers his question. Now, y'all stay with me here. In response to this slaughter in Jerusalem, Jesus says, do you think they were worse sinners than other Galileans? That's why it happened. And then he goes, no, that's not why it happened. He answers his own question. And then he says, not why it happened. He says, and I tell you, unless you repent, you will all Likewise, perish. Okay, <clears throat> Jesus, I'm going to take a break from you because that's insensitive and it's rude and, uh, frankly, it's cold. Can you imagine being in the audience that day? I mean, they're hearing this terrible crime at the altar, and Jesus just goes, well, do you think it's because they were worse sinners than you? And then he says, that's not why it happened. Now, you would expect him to answer why it happened. Pause. Let me just tell you, he never answers why it actually happened. Sometimes, can I just tell you something? We struggle with begging God for the why my son died or why my coworker lost their job or why that marriage fell apart or why did we miscarry a baby? We, we struggle to demand the question why. And sometimes we will never know why terrible things happen. In the moment of this brutal massacre, Jesus didn't give the why behind the what. He dealt with some other things. In this case, Pilate did something terrible, and we don't know why. And sometimes, can I just tell you, terrible things happen to us, to people we love, and we push God to answer why, and maybe Jesus doesn't have the answer to that for you. But I want to tell you and encourage you, you can still trust Jesus if he doesn't answer your why. My wife and I, when on the night before we announced this big Sunday service, we're changing the name of, life, of our church to LifePoint in, the, in January of 2011. My wife and I were in the emergency room at the hospital miscarrying our third pregnancy. And it didn't make sense. I remember telling God, Lord, I'm a pastor for God's sake, <laughs> for your sake. 
and feeling like I never got an answer as to why that happened. You know, it's interesting. My youngest daughter said to me the other day, she brought it up for some reason. And she said, you know, if you would have had that third kid, you probably wouldn't have had me. And that's how she's processing this. I just looked at her and I got a little emotional. I was, I was in bed laying with her. We always put our kids to bed at night. And when she said that, I looked at her and, and you know, I can never imagine my life without her, Brooklyn. She's my favorite. <laughs> they, all, all the rest know it. It's just the way it is. <laughs> it's not true. Stephanie's my favorite. But it is a true sentiment that she's like, if, if that hadn't happened, I may not be here. But we may never know the why. But maybe God's wanting to show us something else. And here's what he does. He goes, do you think this is why it happened? And then he goes, that's not why it happened. And then he redirects. He goes, but let me tell you something. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Unless you repent. I mean, this is tough to hear from from Jesus. He basically said that the tragedy that happened to those Galileans, it's tragic, it's awful, it's a massacre, but if you won't turn your life to God, what you may face is worse than that. If we won't repent and give our lives completely to the Lord, you think that massacre's terrible? Listen, the judgment that's to come and the eternal torment that comes with hell and the worm that never dies and darkness that never stops and heat that never quenches, he goes, it's way worse to endure that if you don't repent. Let me give you a modern illustration. Please don't take offense. Everybody say, I love you, Pastor Mike. I want you to think. Now look, these people came to Jesus right after this massacre happens in Jerusalem at the altar. He says, can you believe that happened? And he goes, and if you won't repent, it's going to be worse for you than that. That seems really insensitive. Today is September 12th. Could you imagine 20 years ago, on September 12th, you're in a room with Jesus, and you go, can you believe what happened in New York City? And Jesus would say, that's awful, that's terrible, and if you won't give your life to God, you will also perish. I mean, it feels so insensitive, but in the immediacy of what he's dealing with, he took that as an opportunity to go, you think it's bad here. That is tragic. That's terrible. That's awful. And it is, nobody's denying it's tragic. But if you won't give your life to God, I'm telling you, we'll all perish and it'll be worse than that. He goes on, he doubles down. He says, let me give you another example. He goes, they, they brought him the example of that story, but he goes, let me give you another example. You remember a couple weeks ago, this is how I imagine it. You remember a couple weeks ago when those 18 people had a tower fall on them at the pool of Siloam? Let me, let, me, let me remind you of what the Pool of Siloam is. It's a pool of healing outside of the temple in Jerusalem where invalids and paralyzed people would come and someone would put them in the water for them to receive a healing. And somehow the, the, the structure faulted and 18 people sitting probably paralyzed next to this pool have a tower fall on them and just... For no reason, like Pilate didn't do it, just the building fell over, crushes them to death. The pool of Siloam was a place of healing, and 18 people died there when a tower falls on them. And the word Siloam comes from the word Shalom, which means peace. The pool of peace, the pool of healing. Oh, yeah, you remember last week when that tower fell on 18 of them? And then he goes, and unless you repent, it's going to be worse for you. I don't, I don't like this text. 
Let me bring you to today's context. What happened in Afghanistan is terrible. No questions asked. Brutality around our country is terrible. Racism, sexism, crime against others, it's terrible. And if we don't turn our lives to God, we'll all perish, and it'll be worse than that. C.S. Lewis, I think, says, for the non-Christian, this world's as good as it gets. It only gets worse from here. You know why? Because judgment is coming. The wrath of God still exists. And listen to me, everybody. Hell is real. Separation and eternal death from God is real. And that's way worse than a tower falling, than a massacre at the temple. He's not denying that those things are terrible. What he's saying is, do you want to blame how bad those people are? No, it's not about how bad they are. And the fact is, if you don't repent, and this is his heart, he's not going, if you don't repent, you'll perish too. He goes, if you don't repent, I'm telling you, you're going to perish too. And this is the reason I came, so that you don't have to perish. The heart of Jesus is not condemning. It's not turn or burn. It's turn so you'll live. This is why I'm here. Come to me, repent. Listen, hang on. He goes, if you think that's bad, wait till you see the judgment of God. You think 9-11 was bad? You think Afghanistan was bad? You think abortion is bad? It's all bad and sinful and terrible. And if we don't give our lives to God, he says, it's going to be that bad and worse. Listen, he deals with the question a lot of us deal with. You know, who's the worst sinner? Who gets worse punishment? All of us are sinners. Let me just be very clear from the scripture. Let me help you. We're all sinners in need of a savior. And if we don't repent, it's going to get worse. The key is not how much you sin. The key is if you repent of your sin. If you turn, here's what repentance is. It's not just going, God, I'm sorry. God, I'm sorry. God, I'm sorry. It's God, I'm yours. God, I'm yours. You change that in me. You take that out of me. So, so many of us in religious backgrounds, in, in like a traditional like religious hellfire and brimstone kind of background, we think, man, I got to just work real hard and do real good. No, give your life to him. He'll make you better. It's not how much you sin. It's how much are you repentant and giving your life to him. Listen to me. Write this down. Don't ever compare your sins to other sinners. Well, at least I didn't do that. At least I didn't sleep with him. At least I didn't steal him. At least I'm not a murderer. Or at least I'm not filling the blank. No, no, no. Don't ever compare your sins to other sinners. Compare your sins to your own level of repentance. And unless you repent of your sins, that's bad. But it's going to get worse. He gives this other example about the Tower of Siloam, whether it's the massacre at the altar or the Tower of Siloam or 9-11 or Afghanistan or abortion or whatever's going on. If we don't give our lives to God, it's going to get worse. And I'm telling you something. I think the church in the West has grown soft on this message. We've grown soft on sin. We think just be a better person, just work hard and be nice, give a little here and there and serve some time to get your feels right. No, give your life to Jesus. The scale is simple. It's not how much or how bad you are. It's are you a sinner who needs to repent or have you repented and given your life to Jesus? We all need the mercy of God completely. That's what I said at the beginning of this passage. No one is exempt. No one's a better sinner or a worse sinner than the other. We're all just sinners, and we need the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God. And the only way to receive that is through repentance, is turning your life to Jesus. And let me tell you something. The end result is terrible if you don't. 
let me, let me help you with something. Repentance is not just repetitively asking for forgiveness. Repentance is not every night before bed going, God, I'm, I blew it again. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And then going to bed with a clear conscience. Repentance, by definition, is a change in mindset. Repentance is a new enlistment. Repentance is a transformation of how you think, which shapes how you live. Repentance is, I was going this way, but now I'm going that way. Repentance is, I was a racist, but now I'm a lover. Repentance says, I was a thief, but now I'm generous. Repentance says, I was a sexist, but now I honor all people. Repentance says, I'm a murderer, and now I'm a lover. Repentance says, I was living for me and doing my best life now. I was living in my feelings and my predispositions, and I was living how I was born. Repentance says, and now I'm going to be born again, and I'm going to live for Jesus, and I'm going to give my whole life to him. Repentance is not just, I mean, I remember as a kid, I grew up in the South, right? I remember every night going to bed, I couldn't sleep until I said my prayer at night, Lord, forgive me for my sins, as if if I died in my sleep, that my salvation was so fragile, like, like God goes, he's saved. Oh, he cussed somebody out. Nope, not saved. He has forgiveness. He's saved. Oh, he yelled at his wife. Not saved. And God's going, saved, not saved. Saved, not saved. Shun, unshun. Shun, unshun. Repentance is lost, son. Gone, found. Dead, alive. So the challenge with Jesus is not unless you get your act together, no, no, no. He says, unless you repent of your life, trying to do it your own way and come live for me. And Jesus is like, this is why I came. There's no scale with Jesus. You either turn from sin and turn to him or you don't. The tragic story about the massacre at the temple is a great warning for Jesus. And then he tells a story. This is the parable. Anybody wish he would have started with a soft parable first? But the, the moral of his parable is bear fruit or get cut down. Watch what he says. Let me tell you a story. And I, I, I think he, he went to a story because people in the crowd are like, are you, are you kidding me right now? This is your response? But he was God, and he had a way of saying the hard right things at the hard wrong times. You know what I'm saying? So, okay, let me tell you a story. And so he goes, there was a man who had a fig tree, planted, planted, in a vineyard, planted in the ground, roots growing, planted in a vineyard. And the man came to seek fruit on the tree and found none. Anybody expect to go to your garden and pluck stuff out of it? We had a terrible garden year, by the way. We planted a garden with our kids every year. And this year, the tomatoes didn't ripen enough, and then the deer were eating them halfway through. And every cucumber rotted on the vine, every one of them. And then my wife decided to grow okra. Do you know how many times she's made okra ever in her life? Zero times. <laughs> you know you're supposed to pull okra when it's like this long, not two by fours? <laughs> like you literally, you got to cut them with a saw. They're terrible. So we don't know what we're doing. But anyway, this year, all of our garden, for the most part, failed. We got some tomatoes because, come on, somebody, like they're like cockroaches. They'll survive. They'll make it. <laughs> but I expect when we grow a garden, I'm going to go out there and pull some stuff. Oh, and basil. Basil did great. He goes to his vine, his fig tree, expecting to grab a fig. Reasonable. And kind of suddenly, he finds none, so he goes to his vine dresser, the caretaker, and he said, look, for three years I've come looking for fruit off this tree, and I find none. Cut it down. It's a little cold, but it's his, it's his tree. It's his, his vineyard. Why should it use up the ground anymore? 
So you're tracking in the parable. The man who owns the vineyard represents God. So he's telling a story now because he's just talked about repentance and coming before God, repentant. Now, the man who owns the vineyard is God the Father. He owns it all. He owns the nation of Israel. He owns the people of the whole world. The vine dresser, the caretaker in this vineyard represents Jesus. At this point in his ministry, by the way, Jesus has been doing ministry for, oh, I don't know, three years. Remember, he's on his way up to Jerusalem to be crucified near the end of his ministry. He's like, let me tell you a story. It's like a vineyard. And the guy's like, I want fruit off this tree. And after three years, he should expect to see some fruit on this tree. And he says to the vine dresser, hey, I got no fruit. Cut it down. What is it doing taking up room in my garden? So the owner's God, the vine dresser's Jesus, and the tree represents us. Immediate context, the tree represented the people listening, or the Jewish leaders of the people of Israel and the disciples. But the big picture is this tree represents us. So here's the deal. The fig tree has been in the ground, soaking up nutrients, getting water, being pruned, attended by the caretaker, and yet no fruit is showing up. And the owner is frustrated and says, cut it down. How many of us know that reality? Some of us live that same way. Look at me. We've been in the vineyard for years. But we are fruitless in our lives for Christ. We, we've been in the church. We've been showing up. We've been serving. We've been doing the things. But it's not transforming the heart of who we are into a heart like Christ and a heart like the Father. We're not seeing the fruit of God's will. Pastor Wayne asked us last week, are we receiving from the ministry of this house and not giving back to it? Jesus was teaching this parable because he thought it was super important. Think of the audience. People had been with him now for three years, and some of them are still not giving their hearts to him. They're not repenting and turning to him. And now they hear this terrible story, and he goes, I know, it's awful. And if you don't turn to me, it's going to get worse for you. I've been telling you this for three years. The religious leaders would have been terribly insulted at the ideas, at the idea that they would have to repent of their sins and follow this guy. But Jesus is saying, I'm the, I'm the only way for you to not get cut down. I'll be honest, I've been very convicted uh, re reading and studying this and some other things in the scripture. It's what Pastor Wayne talked about last week. He said, we want the benefits of eternal life without it costing us anything in this life. I've wrestled with questions, not as Pastor Mike, but just Mike the Christian. Am I turning more and more of my life over to the Lord? Am I repenting of my sin regularly enough, like leaving things in my life? Am I repenting of my predispositions, my attitude, my, my passions? Am I handing those things over to God? Am I growing in the Lord? Am I dying to my flesh and saying no to my sin? Does my life reflect the fruit of God in it? John the Baptist said it like this. We are to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He didn't say bear fruit by repenting. He said keep your repentance. In other words, when I say no to this thing, I'm never going back to I'm keeping with repentance. Paul the apostle writes in 1 Corinthians, he says, the fruit of life, or excuse me, in Galatians, the fruit of the life in step with the Holy Spirit is love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I'm convicted God is, is any of this showing up in my life? Am I generous because I'm feeling arm twisted or am I generous because I love God and he's so generous to me? Do I serve people? Do I bear fruit of a life in God? That's just me as a, pastor, as a Christian. Am I, am I really serving God or do I just preach about it from this pulpit? Remember, Jesus is telling the crowd this parable to illustrate that our lives should be different, that we should repent from sin and repent towards God. And when we do that, our lives will look different. Listen to me. We can't live in this world and not turn from this world. We don't get to have it both ways. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says when God calls a person, he calls them to die. 
He bids him to die to his flesh, die to his sin, die to his way of life. I was born this way. Be born again. I was raised this way. Have a new father. Come on. To repent is to come alive in Christ. It's the only way to do it. So he starts this parable of a vineyard, and then he shows us his heart to help us. The master says, cut the tree down. What's it doing taking up space? Why should it use up the ground? And the vine dresser answers the master, sir, give me one more year. Leave it alone another year. Let me dig around it, widen the water intake. Let me widen the, the soil around it. Let me, let, me, let me do some nutrients to it. Let me put a little manure on it. How many of you know you need a little stank on your life sometimes? <laughs> need the Lord to put a little dung on you. Maybe like the stink of life in a small group, sharing your business and maybe life, uh, you know, doing for others in Waverly or giving. Let, let God put a little, little poop on you. Watch what he says. Then if it'll bear fruit next year, great. If not, then you can cut it down. Remember who the vine dresser represents? Jesus. I tell you how grateful I am that he's patient and merciful towards us. And when the wrath of God feels like it's coming at its heart, it's like Jesus goes, no, 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 God, give me one more year. Give me another season. Don't cut him off yet. Man, I'm telling you, that's why Jesus came, because the whole world needed to be chopped at the root. And Jesus is going, God, let me have another year with him. And he's looking at a crowd of people that he spent three years with. And he's going, you guys still don't get it unless you repent. I'm telling you, the time's coming. If you don't repent... Man, it's going to be worse than this massacre. It's going to be worse than what you're watching. Jesus is trying to appeal on our behalf to extend the mercy and grace of God so that we have opportunity to repent. Remember the caretakers, Jesus, the fig tree is us. Jesus is petitioning the Father for a little more time with us. He's still, listen, this is how we know it's an invitation. It's not Jesus going, if you don't repent, you're going to perish. He goes, if you won't repent, you're going to perish. I'm asking you to repent. Turn your life back to me. And he's asking the Father, give me one more year. Give me one more rotation around the sun. Maybe God's given you one more week, one more month, one more day. Man, this is what I love about Jesus. Romans 2.4 tells us that it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. Religion teaches us it's the anger of the Lord that forces us to repentance. But the Bible says it's the kindness of God. And let me tell you something. Maybe this is why God wanted us to hear this parable in this series. When we were woodshedding this parable series, I remember coming to this one going, I don't want to preach that, that parable. But I'm telling you, church, I believe there's a, there is some stuff coming that's going to be worse than we've seen. And I'm telling you, God would say, if you don't repent and give your life to me, it's going to get worse than that. And it's the kindness of God that's leading us to be a church repentant and fully devoted to God. It's because he's good and he's kind that he's patient towards us. But there is a limit to it. Look what he said. Give me one more year. I don't know what the limit is for you. You might have two more weeks before your life is called into account. I've been dealing recently with the urgency of eternity, like just fleshing out some of that theologically. Like I don't even think we remember that Jesus is coming back for us one day. Do y'all know that? Like he could literally come today when you're driving to Popeye's, bless the Lord. While you're going to Popeye's, Jesus could come back while you're in the drive-thru and take us back to heaven. There's a return of Christ that's coming. Hey, let me tell you something. 
You could literally meet the Lord face to face today because of a terrible accident, next week because of COVID, next month because a tower falls on you. Who knows? There is an end to this life and Jesus is inviting us into eternal life. Perhaps you needed to hear this because you've wanted Christianity to just be a compartment of your life, not who you are. Jesus is telling his disciples and the crowd, this is awful. It's going to get worse. That's why I'm here. I'm, giving, I'm extending the mercy one more year, one more week, one more month, one more decade. And he says, unless you repent, man, it's going to get worse than this. Old school preachers would say, you better turn or burn. One commentator said Jesus was the original turn or burn preacher. But I think it's you better turn so you can live forever. It's, this is an invitation, not a condemnation. This is an invite from Jesus. That's terrible. It's going to get worse. That's why I'm here. Turn to me. Peter writes, best friend of Jesus later, he writes, you know, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise to return. As some of you think he's just slow. Some people are like, I wish Jesus would come on. I don't know what he's waiting on. Here it is. He's not slow. He's patient towards you. Because he doesn't want anyone to perish. But that, say it with me. Come on, Calvinist, say it with me. That all, sorry, I couldn't help myself. That all should reach repentance. And then he says this. Here's the warning side of this. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Don't be fooled. You don't have forever, church. There's a day when the mercy of God will be collected upon. There's a day when your life will be over. There's a day when Christ will return. And the day of the Lord will come like a thief. You know, I grew up in the South where I prayed for forgiveness every night before I went to bed because I thought that was the magic formula to make sure I slept with peace and didn't go to hell when I died. And on Halloween of my senior year, the year of our Lord, 1997, God invited me to repent. And here's what it was. He didn't ask me to be perfect. He asked me to be submitted. He didn't say, get your life cleaned up. He says, give me your messed up life. And on Halloween of that year, I turned my whole life over to God. I said, I'm yours forever. And 20 something years later, I'm still serving God. I'm still not perfect. I still make mistakes. But I'm a son, and I know it gets better from here. My pastor says, for the non-believer, this world's as good as it gets. But for the Christian, this world's the bottom. We're trying to build this utopian experience on earth. That'll never work. The only eternal life is with Jesus. And I want to tell you, God's extended mercy to you. He's given you another year. He's put some doo-doo on your life. He's put a little pain in your life. He's been nurturing you himself as the vine dresser. But this is the moment where God's asking you to repent and to go all in with Jesus, to give your life completely to him. I'm telling you as a pastor, I've been wrestling through this this week, going, man, God, do you have every part of me? Do you have every part of me? Do you have my anger part? Do you have the me when I'm mad by myself and I'm saying some things that I wouldn't say in front of others? Do you have the private scrolling part of me? Do you have the greedy part of me? Do you have the eyeballs part of me that looks at that thing a little too long? I'm asking the Lord these questions this week. Do you have all of me? Because we want to bear fruit in keeping with repentance and living unto the Lord. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying today? I just want to lead us in a prayer. We're going to hand off to our online campus pastor when I say amen. But I want to invite everybody to hear this parable, not as a threat, but as an invitation. 
And if you don't also repent, you will all likewise perish. Father, we need your spirit right now to bear down on us. We need to feel this as a gracious invitation of your mercy and your power to bear in this room. God, as a result of this message, would you draw every one of us close to Jesus, that we would live for you, that we'd love you, that we'd honor you, that we'd give our whole selves to you. Lord, I thank you in Jesus' name that this word is true and active and powerful. Lord, maybe some of us have excused the way we've lived or we've excused our lack of faithfulness or commitment to you because of how we grew up or our struggle or the cross we're carrying or we don't think it's fair. Lord, we just lay all that down today. and We seek repentance. God, we seek a new life in Christ because if we don't repent, it's gonna get worse. So Lord, today we lay our lives at your feet. God, we commit as a corporate body, as a church, God, that we're all in with Jesus Christ. Hey, while I'm praying, I want to know who I'm praying with. Nobody's looking around. If you'd say, Pastor, man, I am in like Flynn. I'm giving my whole life to Jesus today. I'm reestablishing my life with Christ today. Come on, you say, I'm in. This prayer's for me. This message is for me. And if I don't repent, it's going to get worse. And I get it now. If that's you and I'm praying with you, come on, raise your hand at me so I know. Come on, man. Oh, my goodness. Everybody pray this with me online and in the room. Come on, pray it with me. Say, God, say it boldly. Say, God, I'm in. I believe in Jesus, that he died for me. So I will live for him for the rest of my life. Say, I repent of my sin, of trying to live my own way. I give you my whole self. I'm all in to the glory of God. Say, I receive your forgiveness. I receive your mercy. I receive your grace. I will live for you for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name, to God be the glory. Can we celebrate that today? Come on, church. Can we celebrate that today? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen.